But if you have a Bible with you, please uh, turn with me to uh, Haggai, uh, and we're going to look at chapter 1 together this morning. Um, Haggai is a very small book in the Old Testament, uh, so if you're struggling to find it, if you find Matthew in the New Testament and just go back a couple of books, uh, you'll find Haggai uh, just there. And I'm going to read uh, chapter 1. Uh, of this this book to us. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jotadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring down wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labours." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, on the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's word. And I've entitled... Uh, this sermon, uh, Misplaced Priorities. Misplaced Priorities. Uh, a number of uh, years ago, before um, I was a pastor, uh, I used to be a contractor in IT, uh, doing software testing. Uh, and I used to have to apply for jobs uh, many times uh, to get different contracts. And there was one particular job that I applied for, Uh, where I had to do an aptitude test. Uh, So I was examined on uh, interpreting data, uh, on creating and using algorithms, 
uh, how to manage people uh, by doing the dreaded role play. Uh, but one of the tests that I had to do was what was called an in-tray exercise. Uh, and we had a list of tasks, uh, and the tasks were things we had to do day to day, and we had to show how we would prioritize the tasks and then explain why we chose what we did in the order that we chose it. Why we put at the top of the list what we did and why we put at the bottom of the list what we did. And for that job, and in fact most jobs, priorities are important. As it happened in this job, I didn't get it. I failed on the role play. (laughs) Can you believe it? My acting wasn't very good. But in our lives, we all have an in-tray. We all have priorities where we allocate our resources and all of us have an explanation for how we allocate those resources, whether that be our time, our money, uh, or uh, what we read, uh, what we do. Uh, All of us have priorities in our lives. And the question that Haggai asks us, really in his in this whole book, but in, specifically in this chapter, is are we, in the words of Jesus, seeking his kingdom first? Is God the priority in your life? Is he the one around which everything else has uh, orbits around? And I think that's a good question for us to be asking ourselves as we come to the end of one year And we are about to embark on another. As we embark on 2024, are we going to prioritize God and his kingdom first? And what Haggai intends us to see, what he shows us, is is that putting God first is the way that we bring God glory. And in doing so, we live the life that is intended for us as his people. But before we go into the passage, it's worth just looking at where Haggai fits in the story of the Bible. Well, uh, a long time ago, in an empire far, far away, the people of God had gone into exile from the land that God had promised them. It was 586 BC, and the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, had destroyed the temple and carried most of the people away. But in 539 BC, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, led by King Cyrus. And King Cyrus issued a decree that allowed people to return to their own lands and worship their own gods. You can see actually a copy of this decree in the British Museum. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. But this meant that God's people, the Jews, could return to Israel and begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was where the worship of God was based. It was all in and around his temple. That was where the presence of God was said to dwell. That was where sacrifices for sin were made, and offerings were made for thanksgiving and so on. Now for Christians today... We don't worship in a temple. God dwells in his people, the church of Jesus Christ. 
And so our priority for worship is not centered around a physical building, but around working in the project of building up the church through making disciples. And we do this by being Jesus' disciples, which involves sharing faith with others. Some of the Jewish people began to return to Jerusalem around this time, led by a man named Sheshbazar. And they began to rebuild the temple. They got the foundations laid, but then the work came to a standstill. Opposition came. And the Persian king Artaxerxes said that the work needs to stop. And so it did in 536 BC. But in 520 BC, 16 years later, Artaxerxes was dead and Darius was now the king. And around this time, another wave of Jewish people came back to the promised land, following a man called Zerubbabel. And it's this, this, at this time that we meet Haggai. Because it was him, along with Zechariah, who encouraged the people to get on again with building the temple. And so in Ezra chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, this is what we read in God's word. It says, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And you can read about the, the, the work that went on there in that book of Ezra. And the temple was completed in 516 BC. And in the book of Haggai, you can see his role in supporting that work. So verse 1 gives us a bit of that context. The date which we read there is actually the 29th of August, 520 BC. And God speaks through Haggai to the governor and the high priest. Zerubbabel is the governor. Uh, he was a descendant of King David. Um, and Joshua was responsible for the temple worship. And together they represented the, the people of God. So when Haggai is speaking, he's speaking to all of God's people. And so this is a message for, for you and for me uh, this morning. And this message speaks about misplaced priorities. How do we begin to put God first in our lives? So first of all, point number one, in verses one to six, we see that we need to renounce your excuses. Number one, renounce your excuses. That's verses one to six. Uh, Haggai in verse 2 speaks of what the Lord of hosts says. Do you notice his name there in verse 2? The Lord of hosts. It's a common one in the Old Testament. It speaks of God being the head of armies or angelic hosts. But in the period after the exile, it spoke of God's great power and might. In other words, it's a voice that we are compelled to obey. This is the voice of the Lord of hosts. It's a voice to listen to and heed the call of. There is no excuse for disobeying the voice of the Lord of hosts. But the people were making excuses. Now, people make excuses all the time for not doing things. Uh, I noticed there are a number of children here this morning. Uh, and some of you will be in school. And maybe you have come to school and you have found that you have not done your homework. Has that ever happened to you? 
not done your homework. And your teacher asks you, why haven't you done your homework? And you come up with all sorts of excuses. Usually, uh, these days, uh, the most common excuse, I believe, is that there was no Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi went down. Because most of the homework is on, uh, online. Uh, when I was at school, there were other excuses, one of which was the dog ate my homework. And my son, in his school, when he was in primary school, he had a friend who used the excuse, the dog ate my homework. And the teacher, thinking, yeah, I've heard that one before, called him out and said, no, that's, that's ridiculous. But he then proceeded to pull out his homework from his bag, and lo and behold, the dog had chewed up his homework. There was teeth marks and everything. So it wasn't an excuse. The dog literally ate his homework. But perhaps the most common excuse for not doing what we should be doing for any of us is time. I didn't have time. It was not the right time. And that's the exact excuse God uh, is hearing from his people in verse 2. Look at the verse. It says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, God shows his feeling about the people by calling them these people rather than my people. And what they are saying is that the time hasn't come to rebuild the temple. God wanted it done. It had been prophesied that it should be done. It was the way to worship him. But the people were saying, it's not the time. Nobody disagreed that it should be done. But it wasn't the right time. Some people thought, I haven't got time. Some people were saying, it's, it's, it's not quite the right time. Maybe there's still opposition. Uh, I've got other things to do first, and so on. It was all about time. And Matthew Henry at the, uh, on this passage says, Many a good work is put by by being put off. Many a good work is put by by being put off. Well, think again in a moment about our excuses and, and our use of time. But for now, just in verses 3 and 4, I want you to see how Haggai shows how silly these excuses are. In verses 3 and 4, Haggai shows how the excuses are, first of all, fake. They're fake. They're just not true. It's not a lack of time. It's misplaced priorities. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to... Dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins. It's not time to build God's house, but there's, there's plenty of time for their own. They're living in panelled houses. The word living means they're no longer building. So to, to live there means the work is, is really done. It's, doesn't, you know, they, they don't need to do any more. And the word panelled speaks of luxury. The panelling um, was like the final uh, luxurious touches on the house. And so these houses were finished and they were luxurious, while the house of God was a heap of ruins. They had been prioritising their own luxurious lifestyle at the expense of God's house. Now, this is not speaking against having a home. And making your home nice. It's not speaking about spending time bringing up children, caring for family, working. And all the things that we are called to do by God. 
But this is speaking against not seeking God's kingdom, not serving God so that you can have that nice lifestyle that you want and be comfortable. Serving in God's kingdom is decidedly uncomfortable a lot of the time. And when we prioritize our own lives and our own comfort above all other things, and we do anything but be uncomfortable, then we are going to be making these kinds of excuses for not serving God as we ought. This is speaking against um, stepping out of our comfort zone for our convenience. Or is rather encouraging us to do that, to step out of our comfort zone, rather than living in the zone of our convenience, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I think it's true to say, well in fact it is true to say, we always have time for what we really want to do, don't we? We always have time for what we really want to do. And if you want to challenge yourself for the year ahead, if you think you haven't got time for anything, on the settings on your phone, look at the time. It tells you how much time you've been spending on any app that you've got. And if you look at that, look at it and then tell God you've not had time to serve him. That's a challenge for you to do. And so let me ask you this question. What, what excuses do you use to not serve God as you ought to? Is it time? Uh, is it your past? Some people think that past sin or hurt stop them serving. It may be that you can't serve in certain ways because of things that have happened. But that doesn't mean you can't serve God at all. Is your personality an excuse? I'm not a people person, so I can't serve in the church or whatever. Is your health an excuse rather than... Um, health can hold us back from certain things, but it can also be an excuse, can't it? We use these kinds of excuses all the time. We do live life through seasons where we can be involved in different ways in the life of a church, due to work, to health, to time constraints, to caring for children or caring for parents. But our involvement can change without ceasing altogether. We can use our circumstances as an excuse not to be involved in the service of God. We can make all sorts of excuses. But Haggai shows us that the excuses really are fake. They're fake. And so in, verses, uh, in verse 5, we see Haggai say something that he does a number of times, actually, in the book of Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. Do you notice that in verse 5? Give careful thought to your ways. It's telling us to stop, reflect, think about your life. It's something that all Christians should do. And it's a good time to do that, I think, at the end of a year and the start of a new one. And what the people should consider is what Haggai talks of in verse 6. He says that their excuses, as well as being fake, they are futile. So verses 3 and 4, they're fake. In verse uh, verse 6, we see that they're futile. Notice in verse 6 that there is a lot of work going on, but it's getting them nowhere. So there are five conditions affecting the people. They sow, but harvest little. They eat, but never have enough. They drink, but never have their fill. They put on clothes, but are never warm. And they earn money, but put it in a bag with holes. Sounds to me like having teenagers, but there we go. (laughs) But you see, the point is, what they are doing ends up in 
futility. They seem to be cursed in the same ways that we read of in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God said if they disobey him, then curses would come upon them. But what they were finding was that they were choosing life away from God's will and his plans for them, and going their own way, and they were finding that when they did that, it wasn't satisfying. It wasn't what they thought it would be. I'm going to quote uh, to you uh, from a film that I thought was quite up to date, but then I realized it's about 20 years old. Here's, um, Here's the quote. I wonder if you can guess where the film is from. There be the chest, inside be the gold, and we took them all. We spent and traded them, frittered them away on drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy, food turned to ash in our mouths, and all the pleasurable company in the world would not slake our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner. Compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. So, does anyone know the film? (laughs) The film is The Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. And in this film, uh, the crew of the Black Pearl are cursed because of stealing gold from a chest that was cursed. And the cursed was such that they literally became the walking dead, where they existed in a sort of half-life, where one of the consequences was, as the captain said, the drink would not satisfy, and the food turned to ash in our mouths. And although Disney did not mean it this way, this is an excellent illustration of how sin makes people like the living dead in such a way that nothing in this cursed world will ever really satisfy the deepest hungers and thirsts of our hearts. That is the futility of a materialistic culture. It never really satisfies. And it ends up in hell where the curses of God meet their final fulfillment. And yet this is what so many are chasing after. Putting first in their lives, money and stuff. I have a family member that um, on Boxing Day every year used to get up at 3am to queue up for the next sale. And her husband, who's quite a big guy, uh, used to stand in front of the railings to stop people getting in front of my sister so she could get all the stuff off the shelf and take what she wanted. And people, and she said herself... People are like animals at the next sale on Boxing Day, trying to get their stuff. My response is, I'd rather pay like whatever the cost and not have to get up at that time and go. But how can it be that the day after Christmas, when people receive so much stuff, they have to get up and go and get more? It's never enough, is it? And the excuses that are made for not serving God are a mask for a desire to live a life that is comfortable and gives what we think we need above all else, more money and more stuff. And so we don't put God first. But renounce the excuses. They are fake and they are futile. Give careful thought to your ways. When we renounce our excuses then, we can begin to move on to what verses 7 to 11 calls us to, which is the second point. Reorder your priorities. 
reorder your priorities. Uh, Verse 7 is a repeat there, if you'd notice, of verse 5. This time a call to consider how they should repent of their sin. Uh, This call to repentance is given with three commands in verse 8. Go up into the hills, bring down wood, build the house. Repentance means obedience to the word of the Lord. They'd not been prioritizing building God's house. And so they are told to start doing so by getting on with that work. I think sometimes we can make repentance a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. We spend time trying to work out what is God's will for my life. God's will for your life is simply to obey his word. The hills would have been where the trees were. Bringing down the wood would have taken effort. Serving God does take effort, by the way. It's not comfortable. It can be uphill. It can be, I feel like, carrying weight. It takes purpose. It takes resolve. It doesn't just happen. But verse 8 shows us that reorientating or reordering our priorities is prioritizing obedience to the word of God. That means, by the way, we need to be listening to God's word. Do you read it? Do you understand what it's saying? Do you come under the preaching of God's word? That's what we need to be doing as God's people. If you come tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 1 that speaks of the man that delights in the word of the Lord. But after showing us how to reorder the priorities in terms of obedience, Haggai then encourages us towards it. And he does this in two ways with a a positive and a negative uh, motivation. The positive is that this, this, this good will happen when you obey me. And the bad is this will happen when you don't. Now, by the way, it's worth pointing out, he's speaking here to to God's people. This isn't the way of salvation. The way of salvation is asking God to forgive the ways that you've disobeyed him, knowing that you can't earn your way to be saved. It's by grace, through faith in Christ. But as God's people, we then live a life of obedience to God's word. And when we do that, we live the life we're made to live. But when we don't do that, then we're disciplined by our Father, as we'll see. But the positive motivation, why should I obey God's word, is found in verse 8. He says, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. We obey so that God is pleased and honoured. God is worthy, isn't he? Isn't he worthy of our our whole life, of, of us offering, in the words of Paul, our bodies as living sacrifices to him? God is worthy because of who he is and he's worthy because of what he's done for us and his great love that he's shown us in sending Jesus to die for our sins on the cross. He is worthy. But also it is worthwhile. We're made for God's glory. We'll see tonight in Psalm 1 that the man who delights in God's word is blessed and and we'll see how blessed means to, to have life as God intended us to have it, to live the life we're made for, the life we're created to live. So whilst being made for God's glory, giving God glory is what is good for us. It's living how God intends us to live. We find joy and satisfaction in his service where there is freedom. Not in the self-serving patterns of living that we see in our world. So that's the positive. The glory of God. But there is negatives in verses 9 to 11. And the negative 
um, is negative, but it is actually a positive. The, it, it's God's discipline as a father. When the, when the people uh, returned from exile, they had high expectations. They expected much, but they got little. They expected to return to the land of milk and honey, but that wasn't how it turned out. Uh, have you ever bought something that you expected to be great, but turned out to be little? Uh, that happens to me quite regularly if I ever do any grocery shopping online. Um, you kind of see a picture and you expect it to be one thing, it turns out to be something rather different. So for example, I once ordered from Tesco, uh, I've got, there's, there's five of us that live in our house and usually there's others around the table. And so I, when I order a pie, I want a big pie. And I ordered a pie and I thought this was the most incredible deal. It was like a pound or something like that. I ordered it from Tesco and the delivery comes and what do I get? A pie about that size. It wasn't a good deal. It was a tiny pie. I expected great things. It turned out to literally be little. And that's kind of what's going on here with God's people. They, they didn't get what they expected. But the reason was that their expectations were for their own selfish ends. And sin always promises much, but delivers little. And the little it delivers isn't even good. And God blew away what they did bring back. It, it, it wasn't blessed by God. It was, it was cursed. And God tells them why. Notice what it says uh, there in verse, uh, verse 9. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Because of their misplaced priorities, because they were were self-focused on their own little houses and were not put in the house of God first, he blew away what they did have. And again, our focus can so often be on our own little worlds that we miss the blessing of being involved in God's great plans. We miss the purpose for which we're made. Uh, here's a, a, something I want you to think about. In terms of prioritizing. What I don't want you to hear is this. Okay, I've got, my, my, my life is like this jigsaw. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fit God as the biggest piece. Or fit God as the centerpiece of my jigsaw. God is not to be fit into your jigsaw. You are to fit into his big jigsaw. Into his great plans and his great purposes. He doesn't need to fit into your jigsaw. Friends, he already has a plan. Our jobs are to fit into his plans, are to follow him. God is not part of your life. He is your life. You see? We don't prioritize God by saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'll try and fit him in this week. Everything we do revolves around him as his people. And because God knows that that is for our good... He often will lift us from our own little houses and discipline us. So in verse 10, you see that word, therefore, because of your misplaced priorities, bad things happen to them. Notice in verse 10, it was because of you. Now, in a hot climate, the dew on the ground was important for irrigating crops. And so when the dew wasn't on the earth, 
it wouldn't produce crops. And that was, was what was happening in verse 10. And in verse 11, we see that the totality of the land's produce was affected by drought. Grain, wine, olive oil, everything. Nothing they worked on produced what they expected. And notice who's responsible in verse 11. God says, I called it. I did it. It was me. Now, isn't this a bit harsh? Isn't God being a bit horrible to his people here? No. This is discipline in the same way as a parent disciplines a child to steer him or her onto the right path. Um, We're not going to read it now, but Hebrews 12 speaks of how God does this to us as his children. And in doing so shows that we are true children. If worship of God is what we're made for, if worship of God is for our good, God is good when he drives us to that goal he has for us, sometimes with the rod of his discipline. It shows we are his children. Now, it's worth caveating here. Not all suffering is because of our sin. Sometimes there are unexplained reasons why things happen to us. But all suffering is designed to drive us towards God in some way. And so let me ask you this morning, in what ways do you need to reorder your priorities? Not just putting God as a priority, but revolving your whole life around him. Now the building of the temple is not what we are about today. We are involved in Christ building his church which he does through local church fellowships like the church here in Solihull. And so maybe today as we think about prioritizing, have a think about your service in the local church. Do you need to prioritize your giving in the church? That was in a sense a big problem in Haggai. How do I prioritize giving? Well, the principle of, of, of a tithe of 10% is, is good for us. But the question we should ask is, this, is there something I'm not able to do because I'm giving to the Lord? That's a good thing to consider. Do you need to prioritize your time? Whether that be time to read the scripture and pray or time to invest in serving the church? Do you need to prioritize prayer? Whether that be praying on your own or the prayer meeting of the church, putting that as a priority in your weekly schedule. Do you need to prioritize the use of your energy, using it in serving in the church, in reaching the lost? There are other things we could say, but perhaps spend some time, even today, on this New Year's Eve, considering your ways. (coughs) Well, in closing, I I want you to see the end of the passage how the people, point number three really, responded to the word of God. So number three, respond to the word of God. In verses uh, 12 down to 15. I'm not going to look at these verses in detail, but just to say that in this passage, the people obeyed the word of the Lord. And in God's power, they started to rebuild the temple. Everybody got involved. All the people from the top to the bottom. And for us, we need to keep serving God until the church is built at the return of Jesus Christ. And we do this for the glory of God and for our good. Putting God first is the way to true joy. And our God modeled this himself by being obedient. 
in the person of Jesus Christ, who prioritized his Father's will to the point of death on the cross for us. And so as we come to a new year, the call for us is to consider your ways. But in doing this, we ought to remember that our God is a God who is always faithful, is always good, and will always help us as we seek to serve him.